0: Hello and welcome to the latest Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dan Jones, the editor of Asset Allocator, and today I'm very pleased to be speaking to Sophie Kennedy, the Joint Chief Executive at EQ Investors. Uh, We're going to be talking about fund buy lists and all things ESG. Sophie, welcome.
1: Thank you, Dan.
0: On which note, let's start by getting a sense of how EQ constructs its buy list. Um, obviously, you've always had a big sustainable focus, which I think most of our listeners will, will recognise. But I wanted to talk about uh, minimum sustainability standards you've introduced recently. Uh, what's, that, what's that meant for the look and the feel of the, the EQ buy list and the way you, you approach fund selection?
1: So essentially, the buy list that we have um, services quite a wide variety of mandates. We've obviously always had our positive impact portfolios, which have um, kind of a dual mandate to uh, maximise financial returns and positive impact. Um, More broadly, our other portfolios have always um, had a sustainability mindset. We've always thought that the way to generate kind of consistently strong returns is to um, be thinking about the likes of ESG integration, but we've never formalised it within our process. Um, The minimum sustainability standards that you're talking to essentially do that. Um, What they do is they ensure that going forward, we will not be adding funds to the buy list that um invest in certain controversial industries the likes of tobacco thermal coal and also that the funds that we're investing in are really focused on integrating their ESG processes into their decision making when they're investing um in um, in companies so Uh, What it has meant in practice, there have been a few funds that we have divested from, Um, in in no cases have we just decided that the fund is not up to scratch and, and therefore we need to divest. We've engaged with all asset managers where we were invested. Um, and and tried to work with them to for them to kind of up their minimum standards. Um, and in a lot of cases, that's had um, and 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 has has borne a lot of fruit. In other cases, uh, we have taken the decision to divest and remove funds from the buy list. And so there's not been many, as I said, we've always kind of thought about investing in this way, and this is just formalising the uh, the process.
0: Sure, that that makes sense. One, one other aspect I wanted to touch on was. Uh, some passive funds and uh, I think, understandably i think i'm correct in saying um some kind of conventional trackers are no longer on the buy list as a result and we have seen some stories recently as well about passive funds struggling to adapt to say sfdr rules articles eight and nine which relate to the sustainability of their uh, or the sustainability objectives i should say um and obviously those funds have struggled to adapt because they can't really adapt their strategies their their passive funds their trackers so that means they're they're non-compliant um, with a SFDR in some cases. Do you do you see that as kind of a big risk for passive providers in the future? Obviously, there's a lot of money in these trackers, but if people are going to, uh, like yourselves, you have to take, take on you know some higher standard. What can these funds do really to to
1: conform? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with our passive uh, holdings, across all of our mandates, uh, we have um, a blended approach, active and passive. And we also have one mandate that's solely focused on passive funds and ETFs, which is our future leaders portfolios. It's a really interesting question, I guess, and it talks to kind of the innovation in the industry. Obviously, um, to have an interesting passive, you have to have an interesting underlying um, index that's been constructed to to um, kind of uh, generate returns either physically or synthetically and we are seeing kind of a swathe of really interesting new indices coming through ranging from different levels of ESG integration, some of them kind of invest in best in class in the top 25% uh, within different sectors or regions some screen out certain sectors um, some take kind of Um, A less stringent approach and will invest in the same companies as um, a standard index, but uh, hold different proportions of those companies. Um, And not just from an ESG perspective, but from a thematic perspective, I'm sure you're seeing as well, um, kind of some super interesting um, thematic plays that are being played through um, through passive the likes of kind of clean water and digital security are two examples where we're getting pure exposure uh, to those themes at, at you know really reasonable price because it's passive and some really interesting kind of stocks held within those so You know, I can't speak for the rest of the industry in terms of the the old school regional passives, but it's certainly something that uh, whereas we used to use use them where we didn't think we could um, generate active returns or strong alpha, the likes of uh, US large cap would be a good example where we're investing. Now, if we are investing in that kind of space, we're using an index that takes into account um, kind of the ESG integration that we're looking for, the baseline exclusions as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think um, we have touched on this on the podcast before, both sort of the big rise in thematic investing, which obviously is linked into ESG and to passives in a lot of cases. As you mentioned, but also the US as well. I mean, in some ways, ESG has been portrayed as the saviour of the active management industry, but the US does seem like one area where, if anything, it's just uh, reasserting passive dominance insofar as, I know, I look at kind of the ESG buy lists and what kind of funds people are favouring, and it seems in the US there aren't, uh, maybe, maybe there aren't many choices at all. There certainly aren't that many kind of active US ESG funds on buy lists. I think maybe because, as you say, the, the passive options are pretty strong in that market. Is that a fair assessment
1: in your view? I, I think so. It's funny you you mentioned that um we were introduced to a very interesting looking uh, active US fund yesterday um that's looking to launch. So I think it's possible out there to to um to to generate strong alpha through kind of sustainable investing in the US. But um you know, one of the things that you have to think carefully about when um taking a passive versus an active approach is kind of the the constituents and the sector breakdowns within those different regions. Obviously, the US has a large bias towards technology, and therefore, um, you know, doing that with an ESG integrated approach or a sustainable approach can um, can give you kind of um, quite quite big tracking difference, I guess, from from the mainstream portfolio.
0: Sure. Do, do you find um, just in general the kind of the concept of geographic asset allocation is being upended a little bit by you know esg requirements you know as you say there's a lot of thematic funds out there a lot of very interesting niche or slightly less niche nowadays um, plays that you can use which invest globally whereas you look at you know i guess kind of em esg offerings there are some out there but there's far far fewer for you to choose from so do you find do you find yourself kind of looking less on the geographic basis nowadays than you would have done five ten years ago
1: it's a really good question and and something we talk about all the time we've very much moved away from the traditional regional way of investing and I think that is a move um, that's happened very much in part because of what has become available within the industry in terms of new funds. There are, um, if you look at, well, I don't wanna again talk for everyone, but for us, the most interesting, exciting fund launches that are coming out at the moment are those that are global thematic plays. Um, so they, um, the way in which we invest uh, from a top-down perspective is focused on regional, but we also are also looking very closely at our sector exposure and that, um, and through our thematic exposure, as well. Uh, interestingly, you say about um, kind of the emerging market space. Until recently, we were really struggling in our impact portfolios to find those um, strongest. Um, emerging market funds that that we were confident would generate the highest returns, as well as um, kind of maximise the impact. And what we've done, and what we continue to do, is work with asset managers to. Um, kind of structure, co-manufacture, I guess, um, products that, that are missing from our toolkit. And we think that um, will benefit the rest of the industry. And, and the emerging markets is exactly that. We worked with them, um, Standard Life uh, recently, and um, and we're a seed investor in uh, their emerging market impact fund.
0: Do you think that that's, um, is that becoming more common too, as you say, sort of working with the asset managers? not just on, on new launches, but perhaps that side, but also in terms of how you engage with them. Maybe we'll come on to that in a minute. But, but first, the launch side, do you, do you think that's going to become you know, more and more common? As you say to them, look, we, we're looking for something here. We can't really see it anywhere. I suppose that's always gone on to an extent when it comes to different regions, but now people are really trying to branch out into these new areas. Do you think that's happening more and more?
1: Totally. And they're, they're, the majority or a lot of the asset managers that we're working with are hugely receptive you know they get it they want to be kind of innovating as well um they know that they've got experience and, and expertise in um in maybe kind of the esg side and the impact side and in certain regions and kind of putting those resources together um and working with you know wealth managers like us um has has borne fruits. we've we've um we've seeded Quite a few funds actually in the last 12 months uh, where we've been working with the asset managers to um, and it's funny, we've kind of started uh maybe putting tenders out more often, uh, which is maybe something that didn't used to happen. So there's a number of cases in the fixed income space at the moment where we can't find the exposure that we want maybe for a good example is in the short dated space there's not um a huge amount that kind of would meet our minimum sustainability standards and um and and it's exciting we're working with a few asset managers who i said um are, are receptive they've got the resource they've been investing heavily um to be able to kind of cater for this and um and it's a yeah exciting change in the industry
0: interesting yeah yeah and i i from our point of view yeah we, we I think we do see that as well with uh speaking to the asset managers from from the journalist side you know they're obviously always keen to to launch new products if they can and, and obviously if that demand is there might try and it might you know join those dots a bit easier a bit more easily with the likes of you know more tenders going out that kind of thing so we'll see how that that develops. Um we'll come on to some sort of engagement with asset managers more broadly in a moment but I just want to take a step back first and, and look at sort of buy lists in general and perhaps if if it's uh, possible to answer, you know, um, I'm interested in seeing how the kind of the shape or the size of your buy list has changed in recent years. You've got competing concerns on one level, you know, you've got the, the minimum standards, which might, you know, thin out the list a bit. On another, you've got, you know, or potentially these new launches coming on, new areas. Does the, Do those cancel each other out? Have you found yourselves, you know, choosing from broadly the same number of funds or things, you know, is there a wider pool now? Are you choosing fewer funds? How does that work from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I guess um, for EQ um, since kind of 2015, where we had a number of investment managers kind of join with, uh, with it with their portfolios, we did a lot of work at that time to, to go through all of those funds and, and build a buy list, which kind of got too big i guess there were too many funds on there there was a lot of overlap so we've worked really hard ourselves over the last kind of five years to consolidate that list as much as possible while at the same time making sure that we um we aren't limiting choices we hold kind of open-ended funds uh, in the active space we do invest in investment trusts as well uh, and obviously we then have our passive exposure through uh, funds and ETFs we have more ETFs on the um, buy list than we've had before and that's been um, because platforms have have um, been able to better facilitate those ETFs and therefore for our model portfolios that's opened up some opportunities which wasn't possible before. So in terms of the broader buy list, we've definitely cut down uh, the number of funds available to our portfolio managers. That's also helped with kind of consistency of returns across our portfolio and investment managers when there's kind of less to choose from. Uh, We're seeing more consistency of returns, which, uh, which has been a focus of ours. Um, regionally as I've said um, we are investing in that way less and less so it makes less sense to have kind of three and three or four Japanese funds on the buy list for different market environments as an example when we're often getting that exposure more globally now so I'd say it's more concentrated um, it's more exciting than it used to be and I guess the way in which we're thinking about it rather than asset class, sub-asset class, regional, different types of fixed income, we're actually trying to think about it in a different way, which comes with um, kind of different risks. I guess we have to be much more aware of our sector exposures, um, our market cap exposures and where we sit on kind of the style the style bias as well.
0: You mentioned uh, consistency. And, and for that matter, style and obviously a big concern of, of any fund selector is if they see slippage there if they see style drift that kind of thing um i'm interested in that from an esg perspective obviously you've been investing in this area for a long time is that is that something that uh you, that does happen in this space obviously i'm sure esg managers are as conscious if not more conscious than any others about you know the need to stick to sustainable principles that kind of thing but how common is it to see those kind of issues emerging with a sustainable with an ESG focused manager, you know, just as you might get a growth manager drifting into value or vice versa more, more often in recent years, I imagine.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I think the the speeds in which um, innovation is happening uh, means that as an asset manager or even ourselves, we're very aware of it. We need to be kind of on our game and make sure that we're staying ahead of um, ahead of peers. The whole industry we know is now moving to at least um, kind of a baseline ESG integration, um, or they're at least talking about it and saying they do, whether they do or don't. Could be a whole other podcast, I guess. Um, but so what we're seeing is those that we were maybe investing in who were best in class five, six, seven years ago haven't maybe put the resource... Uh, in place and, and invested in the way in which they might have, um, and other new entrants are coming through and, and usurping them and, and kind of investing in a in a much more stringent way and trying to kind of push themselves further, which has left some of the um, you know the um, the older incumbents a step behind. Certainly, and in those cases, we've we have divested. Um, I won't talk to who, but there are two or three asset managers who, um, who I think are probably um, need to kind of take a higher look at what they're doing. It's very difficult in this space when you, um, when you know what you're doing in the ESG and impact space and you continue to, to do that. You can often get kind of left behind or blindsided by um, new approaches that are coming through.
0: That's interesting because I think often there's kind of a sense that there's a first mover advantage when it comes to you know new spaces, but it seems like some people perhaps resting on their the laurels and the opposite almost. But do you when you do engage with it with asset managers about their processes and things like that, what, what are the what are the kind of specific, I suppose, red flags? Um how receptive, you know, you're kind of implying, I suppose, that some managers are more receptive than others to perhaps reconsidering some aspects of their processes, those kind of things. But but what are the big kind of worrying signs, speaking broadly, when, when you're, you know, engaging with managers about their processes?
1: Specifically um, on ESG, I guess what we do is we, um, we look at the underlying holdings. Um, we use Sustainalytics data um, on kind of ESG criteria, which looks into kind of the risks of holding different companies. And we also look at product involvement scores, which essentially look to the percentage of a company's revenue, where it's generated from. For example, uh, you, you know, we use Morningstar, and it will tell you that 5 to 10% of a company is generating their revenues through thermal coal. For us, if that that's a red flag for us. And if we're investing in a company, sorry, in a fund where, um, they have a process in place, um, and this is slipping through through the gaps. then that's something that we kind of take very seriously. So there is um, kind of data sources out there that can support you in kind of engaging with managers on an ESG front. So that would be from a from an ESG perspective, obviously more broadly, uh, red flags for us, the likes of a team leaving or um, or, or co-manager leaving, um, style drift, I think you've mentioned there. Uh, we look to kind of capacity for us. Liquidity is really important. We have ongoing analysis for all of our funds. Um, so if we see kind of um, managers gaining uh, significant assets, then that's that's kind of a red flag for us.
0: Is that is that becoming more common now? It strikes me we haven't seen that many um soft closures in recent years whether that be due to people spreading themselves a bit more widely people having more capacity or just marketing sales teams getting having more of a sway perhaps but but do, you know obviously esg's you know interest is growing all the time do you, do you find that is starting to become a live conversation again or you anticipate it might do so in the next few years for some of these funds
1: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, our buy list and our portfolios uh, as a whole definitely moved from kind of larger, more well-known funds to to the kind of boutique, smaller funds um, over the last few years. And as you said, it's those funds that are gaining the most traction and growing um, much quicker than, than the older guys. And so we are seeing um, some cases uh, where we think that funds should be thinking about closing their doors to new investors we do engage uh with our asset managers uh closely and yeah i think i think it won't be long until we see some of the um kind of the the best in class esg and thematic funds having to think about capacity constraints
0: sure well we'll certainly keep an eye out for that what about um what about sustainability communications in general not just you know capacity communications um obviously disclosure and you know how people do things versus how they say they're doing things is very important what do you what do you see as kind of the areas where people still need to work on in terms of perhaps what you see as kind of basic disclosure levels which maybe aren't there in some cases I know some people are very keen on carbon disclosures for example which some funds do do very well but that's still not particularly common as a Mm -hmm. standardized process are there areas like that which you think It'd be good to see more more widely across across the industry being disclosed.
1: Sure, I think at at the highest level, the biggest problem that we face with kind of the whole ESG and impact landscape is 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 still a total lack of common language. Um, and what one fund manager says is ESG integration or ESG investing, another fund manager um, might disagree with. So I think until we can really tighten the definitions up, we can't you know, expect the likes of greenwashing to disappear. Um, so for me, common language, and, and and you've mentioned SFTR, but something more relevant to the UK market, um, I'd really like to see that coming through and that being a, a key focus. With regards to data, you're totally, totally right, whether it's kind of the provision of... Um, or accuracy of it Um, we need to do better the way in which we work we have kind of a proprietary due diligence questionnaire that we use and and, um, fund managers will complete this while we're doing our research and that's kind of breaking down best practice uh, ESG integration but the way in which it's reported um, kind of the root cause I guess is something that needs to be addressed even some of the largest companies still aren't reporting their kind of ESG or impact criteria um, as, mm-hmm. um, as well as they could be there isn't any consistency within um, the industry and without that accurate measurement and reporting it's very difficult to invest either to manage risks or invest in the opportunities and so that's that's definitely something that, that we need to see come through.
0: Is, is the answer in the interim as a kind of stopgap measure using is it to use a variety of, kind of external standards and providers to try and uh, verify these things as best you can, as well as your own due diligence? I mean, what kind of external data providers, perhaps, or general sustainability standards and credentials do you, do you look to, if if any at all, really, when, when you're trying to assess companies and their um, what they do?
1: Yeah, I'm sure this is going to certainly be a growing space. Um, we There are data providers um, out there who who can provide relevant data. As I mentioned, we use Sustainalytics data uh, when we're looking at our ESG scores and our product involvement, and, and that helps to inform some of our engagement. There are external independent reviews out there. I don't know if you saw Um, the share action asset manager rankings which ranks um, asset managers on on their abilities Um, and there are um, you know more and more coming through in the stock specific space there's a corporate human rights benchmark that kind of you can go to um, and, and have a look but you've also got to be really careful that you don't have reliance on solely using data because i really i think this space is not one for uh, for just quant analysis everything needs to be looked at kind of qualitatively and um and and a mix so um there are a swathe of third-party data providers that are jumping on kind of the the esg bandwagon and and hopefully what that will mean also is that um, the, the the kind of charges around them come down because it is expensive to, to get this data. And obviously for some who, it, it, you know, smaller houses where it might not be their key focus, it's definitely not something I think that their budget could um, could handle.
0: Yeah, I think we, we certainly have seen a lot of people partnering up perhaps for that reason. Um, as you say, cost is obviously also important and always important on these issues, but it does seem like collaborative ways forward uh, uh what's going to be you know the norm i think in future um an intriguing note on which to uh, end because we have come to the end of our time um so sophie thank you very much again for joining me today that was really uh, interesting i'm sure it's given our listeners a lot of food for thought thank you also to all of those listeners for tuning in and do keep an eye out for the asset allocated newsletter arriving in your inboxes every monday to thursday but for now goodbye